Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. About three years ago or so, the state legalized the use of medical marijuana here in the islands, and there are a lot of questions that people have about whether or not there is a true medical benefit, and what are some of the other implications of using a substance like this to treat some common conditions that people may suffer from, including chronic pain, problems with headaches, there are some other medical conditions, including anorexia from having various types of medical problems like HIV or cancer. There's a lot of information out there about potential uses of medical marijuana, but what are some of the facts and what has been happening right here in the islands? Well, today I am joined in the studio by Brian Goldstein. He's the founder and CEO of NOAA Botanicals. They are a licensed cannabis dispensary, and we're going to talk today a little bit about what the product and what the market is here in the islands, and also what are some of the myths that people may have about the use of medical marijuana and its implications on their overall health. Thanks for joining me today. It's really a pleasure. for Thanks for having me. Now, the story of your immersion in the use of medical marijuana really started almost a decade ago. You've been studying this for almost over 10 years or so, trying to figure out if there was a role for the use of this product in people and their health. What did you learn over those 10 years? I first was exposed to, or was first told about that people use cannabis for medicine about 10 years ago. And I, like a lot of people, was quite skeptical. A friend gave me a topical ointment, a topical cream that had been infused with cannabis oil. And I sometimes get arthritic pain and I put it on and it worked. And I was shocked, uh, to say the least. And that began my journey in trying to learn about the medical and therapeutic benefits of this plant. And as I've gone over time and started this company, uh, I've attended several conferences, uh, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Uh, these conferences, uh, scientists and researchers talk about uh, the latest and uh, their research findings on the use of medical cannabis for treatment of conditions such as uh, PTSD. There's some actually some uh, er early um, animal models that show some anti-cancer properties of uh, THC and cannabis. And in particular, uh, there's a lot of really interesting research on the medical use of cannabis taking place in Europe and Israel. A little bit in Canada as well, and very limited research here in the United States because of its continued federal illegality. So because it's still on that, quote, schedule, uh, it's called a Schedule One That's right. uh, pharmaceutical. There's different schedules that the DEA lists for certain medications. And as a Schedule One, it is listed as potentially being harmful and not having any medical benefit. I know on the federal level they're looking at this because many states now have legalized the use of this, not just medicinally, but in some cases even recreationally they're allowing it. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that if it is a Schedule One, research is still prohibited in a classic laboratory type of fashion for as if we would do for other medications. Yeah, it's very, very hard to for a researcher to get a Schedule One license. There's only one in the state of Hawaii that I'm aware of. And frequently it can take five to seven years to get the license from the federal government to conduct uh, medical research on cannabis. And then you have to buy the cannabis from 
the monopoly held by the University of Mississippi, uh, and they produce some really inferior quality products. So um, the best research in the world is unfortunately taking place outside the United States with respect to this plant. Well, and luckily there is research being done because one of the questions that always comes up is, what is the evidence? Show me the evidence. And, you know, in the medical community, we look at studies done in other countries, and if they are done to the same specifications that we would do here, we take that into serious consideration with a variety of medical conditions or even other pharmaceutical products. So there's such things as randomized controlled trials, And that's a situation where you give one group of people one particular element of something, whether it be a medication or a treatment or some type of type of analogy. And then you give another group nothing or or the opposite of that or something different than the first group. And then you compare the outcomes of the two. So generally, we're trying to do something that is not just single report or case reported, but really trying to look at this double-blind placebo-controlled, does this medication, product, treatment, surgery, whatever it is, work? And over the years, we've had some interesting findings. You know, a lot of the things that we do in medicine that we've always done because that's the way it's done, we found out later that maybe that wasn't so good after all. And medicine has changed. You know, we've talked on this show about prostate cancer screening or doing things like mammography for women over the age of, you know, 85 or a variety of things that over time we've determined are not as helpful as we used to think they were and medicine evolves. So it looks like with marijuana use, this is also part of medicine evolving. Now, you've alluded to the fact that that it is it is a plant. So what is entailed in the process of growing a medical marijuana plant? And what's the process of taking it from a plant to making it something that is available in the dispensary? So in the state of Hawaii, each dispensary is required to um, grow, process, and manufacture all of the products in our store. So we control a complete supply chain from start to finish. There's no uh, wholesaling of plant material in between the licensees which is sort of a double-edged sword. Um, we all of, all of the products need to be uh, quality tested by a third-party independent lab. Um, we have uh, about 16 strains of flower uh, or phenotypes of uh, plants in our, product, in our dispensary now. We grow, uh, we have a genetic library of over 30 strains. So we're rotating new strains in as we see what helps patients respond to them. And then we have a a state-of-the-art lab where we extract the um, oils. It's a botanical extraction process uh, that's uh, very well known and been used for thousands of years. Um, We extract the essence from the plant, and then we process it into various products such as um, lozenges, uh, topicals, lotions, capsules, uh, tinctures, um, we also have uh, infused organic olive oil and infused vegetable oil so people can make their own infu- um, own edibles. Uh, licensees like ourselves are not allowed to sell um, edibles or marijuana-infused foods, uh, but we do provide the, the, the products so people can bake their own. Um, it's uh, highly complex. It's very, very difficult. Uh, well, let me say this. It's very easy to grow marijuana in Hawaii if you use pesticides because it's an ideal climate. But uh, there's a zero tolerance policy in testing for pesticides, so we don't use them. And uh, so it's extremely difficult to 
to cultivate, to grow cannabis without pesticides and pass the testing. And we've been very fortunate to do that, be able to do that. And so um, people who maybe have seen cannabis on the black market, they, they think that what's in the dispensaries is the same, and it really, really isn't. It's, it's quite different. Do you think because what's in the dispensaries because of the mandatory testing policy is a pure version? It's a much cleaner version. Uh, the labs that do the testing for dispensaries also offer for a relatively low price the uh, same testing uh, for patients and caregivers to bring their product in. And uh, over 90% of it has tested hot for pesticides. And pesticides, uh, frequently the ones that are used um, when they're burned, uh, uh, turn into cancer-causing chemicals, and especially in uh, immune-compromised or uh, lung-compromised patients, that can be really quite unsafe. So what they might be getting on the black market is definitely not to the same purity standards that what you would be establishing in the in the dispensary because you also have this additional third-party quality testing that Absolutely. you have to go through. Absolutely. It's, it's a critical part of the process. The the Department of Health, who's our regulator, um, is quite proud of the fact that the uh, testing standards in Hawaii are some of the strictest in the country. So if they found that a particular strain or whatever you might have produced does not meet their standards or quality for whatever reason, then you wouldn't you wouldn't sell that product. It would need to be destroyed. Now, this is going from having a plant to having it into some type of material that you're selling at a dispensary. For someone naive like myself, if I walked into your dispensary, what am I going to see on the shelves? I, well, I've honestly, I've never walked into a dispensary. <clears throat> I probably ought to try going and seeing what it looks like. Absolutely. But am I seeing oils? Am I seeing lozenges? Am I seeing like whatever the the product is that people roll up and smoke? What am I seeing? Well, before we even got our license, we conducted uh, some uh, market research and focus groups and uh, spoke to upwards of 50 different people, some of whom have been in a dispensary and some others that haven't. And we really wanted to understand what people were looking for, what they were concerned about, what their fears and concerns were. And so that really helped guide in guide our process in uh, developing our uh, experience, the experience of being in our store. So... One of the things that we did is we have a uh, leather-bound menu that looks like a fine wine list. So when you walk in, because it can be, can be quite overwhelming, you've never been to a dispensary, you don't know what to expect. And what we have found is that people, when they walk in to our dispensary, it feels familiar, it feels safe. Um, and they're holding a, a, a menu that looks like a fine wine list that helps them understand the smell, the flavor, the effect of each of the uh, products and then we uh, spend quite a bit of time training our staff. Now, we don't give medical advice. We're not physicians. But what we do is we help provide guidance on what other people have found to be effective for anxiety, for insomnia, for um, uh, loss of appetite, for pain. And uh, what is really quite different about the experience of using medical cannabis versus pharmaceuticals is your doctor's not going to tell you, oh, buy a gram of golden goat and call me in the morning. Um, they're going to say, you have a qualifying condition. Now go figure out what works for you. And so that that's our job is to help that process of guiding you to finding what works for you. Well, and I'd be one of those doctors who'd be like, you've got a qualifying condition. 
go figure it out. I'm not quite sure what to tell you. So that that idea of that historical information about what's worked for other folks is really helpful, particularly for someone who might not have that experience themselves. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm here in the studio with Brian Goldstein. He is the founder and CEO of NOAA Botanicals. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what this process would be if you go to a dispensary, what you might see on the shelves, and also what are some of the myths about the use of medical marijuana that he hears every day and that some of them I I thought were true. So we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Brian Goldstein. He's the founder and CEO of NOAA Botanicals. And today we're talking about medical marijuana. What are the uses? What are some of the myths about it? And what might someone expect if they are entering a dispensary and want to know what would be available for them? So we've alluded to the fact that a lot of physicians would potentially write you have a qualifying diagnosis, and there are certain diagnoses for which there is evidence and medical information to suggest that marijuana may be a potential treatment for it. What are some of those diagnoses? So the most common qualifying condition is chronic pain, Um, also cancer, PTSD, um, as well as uh, Keisha, which is uh, wasting syndrome, uh, which comes from frequently people who are uh, under radiation or chemotherapy. Cannabis is a known appetite stimulant, so uh, frequently people will lose weight and sometimes significant amounts of weight while they're being treated for cancer. So not only can it help with the pain and discomfort and anxiety um, and insomnia, it can also help with uh, stimulating the appetite. So for someone who has a qualifying diagnosis, they would get a certification from their physician that says you have this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. They would present to the dispensary, and you mentioned that there would be, you know, a, a comfortable environment, but there would also be a listing and some staff that would help people to identify if you have had this particular problem, let's just say, you know, cancer and you're on chemotherapy and you can't eat and you're having difficulty with a lack of appetite, this might be a product that some of our other clientele have used in this amount. Because unfortunately, because of that Schedule One regulation, there's no real dose to affect information that is straightforward like we might have for a blood pressure pill, for example. That's absolutely right. So the general advice is to start low and go slow. So uh, we'll ask, uh, suggest to people that they take a small dose. um, And depending on the method of ingestion, whether it's smoking or vaping or eating it or taking a capsule or pill, um, the time to effect can range from a few minutes to a couple of hours. And so we'll help guide them on that and suggest that you wait to see if you get an effect. And if you don't, then then you can take another small dose. And and it's important that people don't give up after one try, that they give it a week or two. And, and if it's not doing what they are hoped for, then come back. We have a rec- copy of their record of their purchase. Talk to us about what they did experience. And then we'll help them find perhaps a different type of product or method of delivery that can help them. So what works for me 
may not the exact same thing may not work for you. And that's part of the path of discovery, um, which is with cannabis is patient directed as opposed to physician directed. Now, you mentioned the method of ingestion. Is there any variation in the strength based on how it is ingested? Or is that another kind of personalized aspect that has to be worked out with the individual? Oh, absolutely. So we have uh, tinctures um, that have uh, CBD and THC, and there's various potencies ranging from completely non-psychoactive. Uh, the, the amount of THC is very, very, very small, but it, it, it helps the body to really uh, utilize the CBD um, to um, tinctures which are much more potent that are good for more nighttime use because THC will frequently make you sleepy. So we have a variety of potencies, um, lozenges and capsules as an example, as well as topicals. We have a regular strength topical lotion, an extra strength topical lotion. And um, you you try it, and then if it works, you know you found something that, that works for you. So if you were to take it for, you mentioned, you know, joint problems, a topical might be a good way to consider trying it if you have a joint with no skin breakdown or any other reason why you couldn't use that. Absolutely. But if that didn't work, you could use some other form of ingestion. Yeah, so a tincture or a lozenge would be another uh, good method. We have a lot of people come in who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We actually, actually even have patients in their 90s. Um, and frequently, uh, people in those age groups really don't want to smoke or vaporize, uh, and so they're really looking for um, something that they can um, maybe start on as a topical, um, and they then they find relief. They, they it's part of the destigmatization because people uh, come in and they they have. 40, 50, 60 years of stigma that they're getting past, but they're either in so much pain that, and they're just desperate to get off the opioids or whatever it is that's causing them to come in that they will actually finally break down and come in and try it. Or they've um, more than likely they've had a friend or loved one that suggested it. Well, and in that case, you know, it's funny because I often see people who get older, they have a lot of you know, I see some patients who are in their 80s and 90s. I saw some today, and they're like, the only thing that bothers me is when I get up in the morning, I'm so stiff and I can't move for the first half an hour, hour of my day. And then as long as I keep moving, I'm great. But every time I go to bed and I get up again, whether it be a nap or whether it be even if they just sit in a chair for too long, they have such significant stiffness. They don't want to take a medicine that is going to be harmful to them. And they don't want to take anything like an opioid that will make them sleep a lot. But they're looking for some low-level relief. And in fact, you know, I have looked at some of the information out there. And one of the fastest-growing groups who are using it are the people who are older. Absolutely. Um, sort of the greatest generation people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s are really the fastest-growing group. And uh, it, it's it, it's very common to start with a topical or lotion. And it can be really mind-blowing. I mean, you, you serve, people are frequently skeptical. They put it on this really sore joint, and a few minutes later, the pain is gone. And you're like, wait a second. This can't be real. That was my personal experience. Well, and it's funny because they have no problems trying Bengay or Icy Hot or some of the other topicals. And so this is another topical that, like you said, if you break past the stigma, can actually wind up 
working fairly well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Brian Goldstein, the founder and CEO of NOAA Botanicals. When we come back, we are going to be talking about some of the myths of what some things that he hears and some things that I used to think are things that we are going to discuss as true or false. We'll, we'll go through a little, a little uh, example of that in just a few moments. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Brian Goldstein. He's the founder and CEO of NOAA Botanicals. And we've been talking about the road from plant to dispensary and what happens over the last uh, couple of years since medical marijuana has been allowed in the state of Hawaii and in many other states now. What is that process? And now we're going to talk a little bit about you know, what are some of the myths that people may have? And what are some of the things that are true about these different types of products and methods of delivery of the use of medical marijuana? So I'll mention something that either I have thought or someone else has told me or might be something that might be a myth and you can tell me uh, true or false and then tell me why. So I've heard people mention that CBD, uh, which is over the counter and you can purchase it at various different stores, is just as good as good as THC. You don't need THC in any type of oil or capsule. True or false? Well, for some people, that's true. Um, and there's a great many people that find uh, they get really good relief from hemp-derived CBD products, which is what is available over the counter. There are about 150 active compounds or cannabinoids in the cannabis plant, and hemp is a form of the cannabis plant. Um, and for some people, CBD is enough. Uh, for a lot of other people, uh, the CBD alone isn't doesn't work. And what happens is, and Part of the challenge is because there's a lack of research. We don't know why it's true, but for a large number of people, a small amount of THC is needed for the body to really activate the usage of the CBD. And they're both um, very, very effective in a sort of anti-anxiety and anti-inflammation. Okay, so some people, CBD alone might work. If not, they may need the THC component. And once you start getting a certain percentage of THC, because it's the psychoactive component, that's when you need to have a medical recommendation, a certifying diagnosis, and that's what you would get at the, the dispensary. That's right. Okay. Is... Uh, some people might think that the use of medical marijuana is kind of like a gateway drug, that it's just one step into another path. Uh, true or false? That's a common misconception that was uh, put out by the um, early in the early years by the federal government as part of their anti-marijuana campaign. There's uh, no scientific evidence to or uh, sociological evidence to show that the use of cannabis leads to the use of other drugs. Now, people can always have an individual story that they point to, um, but the fact of the matter is, if you look at the rates of use, uh, and that also ties in, one might argue, with uh, the use amongst teens. Now, no one is looking for juvenile use of cannabis, but in the states where uh, cannabis has been legalized, we've actually seen decreasing usage by teens. 
um, by significant amounts um, in the states that have legalized cannabis. So far from being a gateway drug, um, cannabis can be seen as an off-ramp drug from the use of um, the overprescription of opioids. Um, There's some really, really interesting research on the use of opioids and the use of medical cannabis uh, coming out of Israel. And uh, they found that people who uh, are addicted to opioids and begin using medical cannabis within two weeks of starting a cannabis program, self-directed, that they'll spontaneously begin to lower the dosages of opioids simply because they don't need so much. So it's rather than being a gateway, it's really an off-ramp. Well, and, you know, there are some studies here in the U.S. looking at statistics, and I know that in my home state of Pennsylvania, they did an analysis of the number of claims, and I think it was either Medicaid mm-hmm. and Medicare patients combined together, the number of claims for opioid use, because you can look at the numbers of mm-hmm. patients who are using opioids before and after the use of medical marijuana and found that afterwards there was a statistically significant decrease. So although we're not doing the studies that are looking at the effect from the patient perspective, we are doing studies looking at the statistics and financial numbers of billed prescriptions for opioids. So that's that's seeming to be true in various levels in the research we can do here in the U.S. Absolutely. The study on the use of cannabis uh, by teens was done in, uh, in 40 states. Um, uh, the study with respect to the decreasing use of cannabis was published by the Journal of American Medical Association and has shown that in states with medical cannabis uh, programs, the rates of um, overdose of opioids and the rates of prescriptions of uh, opioids decreases at an accelerating rate the longer that the, uh, the uh, medical cannabis program is in, in effect. It's really compelling. The numbers are inarguable. Well, and given what we now know about opioids that we did not know previously, certainly it bears repeating that this could be an alternative to using something that we have seen causes significant problems, not just with prescription opioids, but also, you know, they can be and are known to be a gateway drug to using other illegal substances. Absolutely. Prescription opioids are a known gateway to uh, lesser expensive forms of opiates such as heroin. Well, and that's that's a truth that unfortunately we are now dealing with in society now. Now, the other question that comes up is is driving. Can you can you drive if you're using a medical marijuana product, regardless of the type of ingestion? Is this going to lead to impaired driving? So, and driving under the influence of any uh, substance is illegal, whether it's alcohol, opioids, Ambien, or cannabis. So. Um, and it's really the impairment that is the problem. Uh, so, for example, I could take and frequently take a tincture that has um, a very, very low dose of THC and has a high proportion of CBD. I take it almost every day, and I feel fine. I, there, there's actually no psychoactivity, but I would test positive for THC in my bloodstream. So it's the impairment that's critical, and you can get arrested and convicted for driving under the influence without being able to be detected of having a substance in your blood because sometimes they don't know what it is that you're under the influence of. But if you fail a field, if you fail a field sobriety test, you're going to be arrested. Well, and the issue is the impaired driving. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen some fairly sober people do some really dumb things, even on my just my short little travel from Straub Clinic to here today on King Street. I'm like, 
do you really make a right-hand turn from the middle lane? No, you do not. <laughs> but this car in front of me seemed to think that was totally rational. So, you know, if you, you can do dumb driving no matter what you're under the influence of, even just bad driving. It's just in and it's of so itself. True. It's a problem, yeah. So are there is there another common myth that you hear often when people are concerned about embarking on this use of medical marijuana? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, it's a common le- a myth held by especially um, our older patients, which is, I don't want to get addicted. Uh, will I get addicted? And um, that is uh, a common myth that has been pro- uh, a proponent uh, put out there by the uh, federal government as part of their anti-cannabis uh, campaigns. The rate of addiction, anything can be addicting. You know, shopping for handbags can be addicting. Um, so the rate of addiction of cannabis is uh, less than the rate of addiction for caffeine. So it is not an addictive substance, um, and uh, the use of it will not cause you to become addicted. Well, and I'm addicted to caffeine, I'll tell you that much. So it sounds like I ought to take a look at some other things. But you're absolutely right. There is, there's no evidence that it would be addictive. You know, you really did help us bust quite a few myths today, Brian. And I appreciate you coming on the show to explain a little bit more about the use of this for people's medical health. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week like we do every Monday right here on The Body Show. See you then.